Hello and welcome back to Subway Podcast. Please announce good news, man, in the studio. Zachary, how are you? Doing well, Telf. Long day, long week, but we're we're done. The weekend is here. Um, yeah, Liverpool are winning. What more? What more can you want? Another Champions League final. The quadruple is on. Our guest is uh, not happy. <laughs> say the least. Say the least. Yeah. <laughs> Now, please tonight, we've got a first actually returning guest. I think that's the right, Zach. First ever returning guest. Let's so, go. But got um got Ollie Stemman back on. How are you? All good, guys. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, all good. Just want to say, well, Ollie, so good for coming on. Just considering as an Everton fan, coming on with two Liverpool fans. I mean, uh, no, it's the character of a person to do that. Respect, respect. Uh, it's difficult. It's one of my uh, one of my grievances in life being Everton fan. But no, Matt wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't shy away from that whatsoever, mate. No, I think we could nearly do a full podcast on that ourselves, but we'll, we'll stick to the rugby. But yeah, Ali, so the last time we chatted to you, you actually, uh, I think it was just maybe a week or two before you announced your new club with Bedford. So chat to us really since then, kind of your back playing. I know that was a difficult time with COVID and all. How's the season been so far for you? Yeah, it's been good. It's been, a, it's been an interesting season, obviously off the back of COVID in the Championship, but quite a few break weeks so it's kind of been a bit um a bit difficult maybe to get some sort of form going because every sort of three or four weeks you've got a week off because essentially i think we as a, as a as a rugby community sort of overbared for the impact of covid obviously following the the season was cancelled or, or cut short so um it's going to be quite difficult obviously with with those gap weeks the, the cups being backdated to the end of the season rather than uh throughout the season it has been historically sort of following the premiership cups and um and European competition. So, no, it's been difficult. Bedford, we've done well, finished finish fifth this season, probably not as well as we could have done. But um, overall, I think um, if you look at the league, the sort of four of the five full-time teams have finished top uh, and sort of all the top four as well. And we've sort of finished the next best team out of the part-time team. So um, it's not the worst accolade to have. Yeah, and then this will be this will be out tomorrow. So you're going up Corners Pirates, uh, there's only a point in it, if I'm right, from the first leg in terms of the Championship Cup. Are you feeling confident kind of going into that one? Yeah, we, we went down that place last week. Um, obviously, the new the new formats, the aggregated system, so it's um, a bit of a, a new concept in rugby. But um, no, we, we we kind of blew it a little bit there place last week. We, we were sort of 15 or 16 points up and then uh, Pirates came back quite strong last 20, which was a little bit frustrating. But, um, but no, we should feel confident sort of only one point in it essentially it's a, a little game um, throughout all the cliches here but um, hopefully uh, sort of home advantage should see us through we got ladies day at Bedford as well so if there'll be um, be a big crowd in there's always always a good crowd at Bedford but even more so hopefully we get some good weather as well um, so yeah so with, with the sport behind us and, and sort of home advantage I think we can uh, we can get the business done fingers crossed yeah especially against um, Cornish Pirates they would definitely be a team in the championship with premiership ambitions one day kind of I'm looking at them kind of building on their infrastructure and stuff. So it must be good for you guys, is that you're saying kind of the, the best of the rest. I don't know if that's maybe the best term to use, but it must be pretty encouraging kind of going up against those teams and getting results. No, it's, it's true. Like it, You can't hide what it is. We, there's, there's five teams, or I think five teams in the championship who are full-time. And we finished above one of them and we're quite close to the other four. So uh, we got good results against some of the top four. We beat Doncaster, beat um, Ealing. Um, so and we beat Jersey as well. So we beat four, out, three out of four teams. So um, it's good that we, we're still mixing it, even though we're obviously very much part time uh, against full time teams. So um, so yeah, there's um, there's no reason, especially 
later in the season when the pitch is a bit firmer and, and Bedford, obviously notoriously a team who likes to throw the ball around, it definitely um, suits our style of rugby. So nice big pitch at Goldington Roads and um, we can retest them. Mm, best, best luck tomorrow, but... Sure, we'll get we'll get straight into it. You mentioned Ealing there. Obviously, the big we actually I don't know you seen we had Angus Kernan on last week, just the from two weeks ago was it's like the Ealing mm. Trailfinders winger, and it was the day before the announcement came out. So it was a bit annoying for us. We had to record another little part of the podcast, just a wee disclaimer on to say this was recorded before the promotion because at that point we didn't no one knew, no one knew. So kind of Angus was hopeful to be playing in the premiership next year, and we were talking about kind of his dreams, his ambitions as a hopefully a premiership player. But sadly then Ealing withdrew from their kind of appeal against the decision and they'll be playing again in the championship. Uh, from a from a player's perspective that are in the championship, how disappointing really is it that they kind of basically just didn't get promoted? I mean, I think the whole the whole notion of removing promotion relegation from any, any British sport that is, uh, I think, it's kind of inherent in, in all British sports that that promotion relegation system isn't. We're not we're not Australia. We're not New Zealand. This kind of British sports have always been based around competition. I know rugby is quite late to get to the party in terms of the professionalism side of things. However, um, I think across all British sports and just generally society, I think there is that promotion relegation makes things interesting. Um, it's it's disgraceful that a team who is the best team in their league isn't given the accolade of being worthy of being promotion due to whatever whatever rules the RFU have made up or whatever whatever laws or ridiculous sort of concepts. But also the notion that the team who finishes the highest in the league above, whichever, whether it's the premiership, the championship or further down the, the grassroots rugby scale, deserves to be in that league should they finish bottom. So the team who finishes bottom is, is just as worthy of relegation as the team who finishes top in the league below is as worthy of promotion. So I don't know. I've spoken to a few of the Ealing boys. I don't know what, what Angus sort of said in your podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but uh, it must be so disheartening for those guys to think they've, they've worked all season. It's the first season kind of without the premiership club that had fallen down and dominated the league. I know it hadn't always happened that way. Bristol spent um, quite a long time in the league and I think we'll start two seasons as well. But they've actually had a level playing field in terms of they played against 11 teams who all got an equal level of funding from the RFU rather than one team having currently, if, if a premiership club came down, would have more than the rest of the league put together. And they've been the best team in the league over the course of uh, 20 games or how many it's been a season. So therefore, they rightly deserve to go up. Um, the rules that prohibit that from happening, I mean... Personally, for me, I think are ridiculous. So, so yeah, it's my yeah. It definitely, it definitely seems like it, it's pretty clear the case that they just are trying their best to ensure that the Premiership doesn't become a fourteen-team league, which is just kind of baffling. Do you think? Because um, obviously, Doncaster were and Ealing were very close this year. Um, Ealing pipping them to the title. Um, do you think if Doncaster would have been first, that, that maybe would have been a bit different, just kind of having finally a team from Yorkshire back in the top tier of English rugby rather than another London team? Or do you think, um, it, regardless of who it was, um, even if it was, say, Cornish Pirates, Jersey, Bedford, um, that it, it was never going to happen? I think I think it's regardless who it was, it was never going to happen because I know Doncaster falls under the minimum threshold by the, the rules of the ground is was the issue, the main issue. Uh, however, Doncaster is more than capable of having 8,000 there for Women's International. No problems whatsoever. Nearly that figure for um, England 20s who played against Wales. 
only a couple of months ago, no problems whatsoever. And this notion that the the, the, the mythical sort of 10,000 person or 10,001 people, the notion that an Ealing Trail finders who currently average 600 fans coming up are going to be anywhere near the problems that would be caused by that threshold is ridiculous. I, this isn't premiership football. You don't get thousands and thousands of away fans traveling back and forth for games. That doesn't really happen. Ealing might double their attendances, might, might triple their attendances. It's not going to, it's not going to be, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, a position where it would be a breach to safety. If anyone's been to Ealing Rugby Club, they know it's, it's a massive facility. There's ample space in terms of, uh, should there be a worst case scenario situation? It's not as if people are, are, are crammed into a stand. It's, it's a wide open space. So for me personally, I think it's just a barrier to entry. I don't think it's, anything more than retaining the status quo in my own personal opinion, which has been achieved. And, and realistically, this isn't, this is just the final, the final straw on the camel's back. This has been going on for the past five or six years. Funding's been decreasing year on year. Um, the rules keep changing after, after sort of Bristol got back up and then the playoff system went because the playoff system actually gave an opportunity to the other three clubs or whatever it was, uh, it was eight on the playoffs. To, in a one-off game, they could beat a Bristol, could beat a Worcester, or could beat a, a big club coming down. So they got rid of that and they made it first past the post. And then the uh, Saris came down, or there's a playoff final, like it's it's Saracens. Right? They've got 20 internationals in their squads. It doesn't matter. You could put the best of the rest of the championship team, like a championship 15, and would still get 100 put on them. So unfortunately, it's been going on for a long time now. And I think the RFU, in my personal opinion, have, have got what they, what they came for. Yeah, yeah, as you as you said as well about the stadiums and all. Just for any listeners, was is it ten thousand was kind of the, the yeah. number or that they'd be asking for? So to ten thousand, yeah. that's yeah, ten thousand and one. And Doncaster wasn't one. too far off that. I don't, I don't, I think Doncaster can get about eight thousand there. So it's not. We're talking twenty percent difference. Um, it's just that it just baffles me, and I know that like it's been talked about at length in different um and by yourself and and others but it just baffles me that you need to have a ten thousand seats around a rugby pitch to qualify yourself to go up even though you're more than capable of a team we'll get on to the fact that personally i don't think the gap is as big as people are making it out to be um you know ealing are backed by an incredibly wealthy wealthy man so the the risk of another london welsh is very very slim if to not even possible like you look at someone like london wasps like they don't fill they barely fill the rico arena like the, the all time maybe for a big game but at the same time an average game against worcester at home or something like that on a saturday afternoon they're not filling the stadium i just don't it's just i mean like it's that thing it's just they're just trying to they're just making things up even look at saracens saracens one of the yeah. most successful clubs even saw even this year coming back from the championship and they're I mean, Saracens were given the grace period to build their stadium up in, in North London there. When they first got there, it was a running track with one stand and an old athletics um, facility that was used as change rooms. So they were given a, a period of time with temporary stands to build things up. And the right way, I mean, the RFU should should have supported Saracens in that notion in terms of yeah. you're trying to do your own thing, you're getting away from Watford. We, we, we want clubs to have their own identity. We don't want, Ideally, we don't want clubs borrowing football grounds. It's not it's not sustainable. So they worked with Saracens over a period of time to get them to a, a, a position where their ground was of adequate um, size and capacity. I mean, it's still got temporary stands everywhere. So it's not, they're not permanent stands. It, it is an adequate size. So I think 
the fact that the RFU couldn't work with Ealing or Doncaster, whoever whoever won end up winning the league or who applied for it, the fact they couldn't work with those guys to find a two, three, five year solution to this problem and say, obviously I don't, I don't know the full ins and outs. I'm not sat on an RFU appeal board. I'm not sat in the Ealing um, director's box. I'm not sat obviously not fully informed, but the RFU should have done everything they can for the interest of the sport and interest of competition to work with whichever club wanted to go up and win the league to try and make this sustainable and try and build that brand long-term. Obviously, we say Ealing's owner's very rich. He's a rich man, but the the finances required to buy into premiership shares, which are, mm. I believe, in the millions and millions to build probably at least two new stands at Ealing. We're talking, I don't know, some ridiculous figure as well. To then extend the squad to a premiership level, we're talking another few million pounds to extend the infrastructure, backroom staff, travel, the, the, the ability to do that in, in terms of liquid capital is outrageous, the amount of money required. So it's a difficult situation all around. But for me, I don't think personally, I think the RFU have done everything enough to promote the sport uh, and have that continuation of competitive sport. And a team that wins the league deserves to go up and a team that finishes bottom deserves to go down. Because um, yeah, as you said, like you want a competitive league, you want competitive leagues, you want, you want to look at the French model in terms of free professional leagues and strive towards that and that, that makes the international side, which is always the aim for the RFU. Obviously, same with Ireland is the national team is the end goal and winning stuff there, winning World Cups. Um, Zach, you mentioned there about kind of London Welsh and I had read multiple articles about people saying about we don't want <laughs> London Welsh. Not to take you back there to a uh, tough season, Ollie, but from someone that has been in around London Welsh and experienced it, kind of what would you say would be the difference between that London Welsh side and maybe what went wrong for that London Welsh side in terms of what could be learned from that going forward? Well, I think I think it was, it was obviously on a difficult start to begin with because that season we finished the championship season in the second week of June, maybe. So, obviously, as a financial forecast, I, I imagine the board and the people were, were planning for the eventuality of if we get to the premiership or if we stay in the championship, obviously the budget's for a premiership squad would probably be, I don't know, three or four million pounds more expensive on players than it would be for a championship squad. The players you can get with uh, the lure of premiership rugby would be very different. So I think it was a very difficult period. And also, when it comes to June, you're recruiting players. Who's available in June? Who's good? Or who's doesn't come without an, an issue? Or whatever it is, most good players in June are fully signed up months ago. So I think the whole competition of allowing London Welsh the best ability to prepare for the season was wrong anyway. Uh, having said that, I think our coach at the time got recruitment wrong yet. We clearly got recruitment wrong. We lost 22 games or whatever it was on the bounce. Um, however, it's not to say that it can't be done. You look at the Exeter model. And Exeter are now one of the best teams in the country, if not the best team in the country at times. And have won premierships and have done well, competed well in Europe. And they did it, they did it exactly the same way. They came up through the league system, they won the championship, they managed to stay up. And what a, what a brilliant success story that is. How good is that for the whole region of the Southwest, which is a big rugby area, similar to what Yorkshire would be. I know Ealing is a slightly different situation because it's London and what have you. But Yorkshire, particularly if it was a Doncaster or a Leeds previously, how good would that be for the region to have a premiership club back in, in Yorkshire? And you're prohibiting that sort of fairy tale story from happening, happening which obviously, in my opinion, is pretty wrong and, and as we said as I keep alluding back to I, know, I think I think it's Bath about the league right now Bath got done by 64 at the weekend do they deserve to be in the league getting beaten by 64 they were, they were the similar scores what London Welsh were getting beaten by 
and we deemed that they weren't uh, good enough to be in the league. I know, obviously, Bath are a lot better than that. However, if you're losing by 64 on your bottom league, do you deserve to be, do you not deserve to have a season in the championship? Do you not yeah. deserve, yeah, it's, yeah, it's bewildering to me at best. Yeah, that, like, even out there, people are saying, oh, well, the gap's too big. It's like, it's like the argument of, well, Georgia should be given the chance to join the Six Nations because you literally just aren't good. And then, or Georgia play at Lee, and then actually it turns out, no, <laughs> there's a big gap there. But the same just isn't there. I don't think you're right. Like, if Bath are getting beat, I think it was, they got beat 68 0 by Gloucester. That was it, yeah. Um, like you shouldn't be you're right like there has to be consequences yeah. for those types of results because what happens is you rest and you you don't really need the there's no urgency from bath to change because well here we'll just got another year in the championships what you're actually doing is you're actually bringing down the standard of the premiership because you'll probably have a bath a worcester um I don't know who else, but there's there's a there's a risk that you get three or four teams in the Premiership who should not be there. We had we had a Premiership club forfeit a cup fixture this season. Had there been an element of promotion relegation, would have that club forfeited that fixture, or would they have played academy boys, young lads, given those boys like that that amazing opportunity to play a first team fixture? If 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 that element of relegation or promotion uh, and being very much at risk. Of that situation, would have that eventuality happened? Probably no. And also, one thing, like, sport is the biggest meritocracy I think in society. There's nothing ever given in sport. You, you don't get anywhere unless you're very good and work hard. Like, it's, and you're taking away what is the meritocracy that you have to work to be somewhere and you have to work to stay. It's, it's hard to get there. It's even harder to stay there. And yeah. taking that away is. Is ridiculous. Just, just also touching back on a point, I, I disagree with what you said about the gap between the championship and the premiership. I think the gap between the championship and the premiership now is bigger than it's ever been. I think due to the defunding of clubs, the, the budget's gone down, uh, I believe, 75% in the last five years. The standard of the championship has decreased because of that. The, the, the fallback, it used to be the case where boys who were maybe falling out of premiership clubs or weren't playing and wanted an opportunity would come to the championship because they still pick up a good wage and there was that opportunity there. Now, those wages aren't there. Um, the think, sorry, sorry um, that was my fault. I, I wasn't clear. What I meant, I think you're I think you're buying on. The gap is bigger than it's ever been. Yeah. In terms of that, the, the the top kind of the cream of the championship and Ealing, do you think that, do you think that gap is as big as people make out? But like Ealing yeah. and yeah. Bath and Worcester, do you still think that's still yeah. big? Okay. Massive. If we look at the premiership, look at the championship final last year, what was it, 130 to 10 aggregate or something? And like, but, it's like it's would, you, would, would if, if Ealing were to play Bath and say it was like a relegation playoff, yeah, um, Bath would win comfortably. Yeah, comfortably. Win, okay. Yeah. I mean, and it's no disrespect to Ealing, it's just the way the league is right now. Um, I think the league five years ago was stronger. I think there's probably four teams in the league five years ago that were stronger than all the teams in the championship right now. Okay. I think, conversely, I think the current league system that we have now with the championship, I think five years ago, um, at least three off the top of my head, maybe more of the teams wouldn't be in the championship right now in terms of they wouldn't be good enough. I think the standard, and then going back even beyond that five years ago, even further, the standard was way higher because of the, Mainly due to the financial incentive, there is there is no financial incentive now to play in the championship at a full time level because three out of four, 
four out of the five clubs, the money you're earning probably is halved from what players were earning potentially. So, um, yeah, the standard of the championship has, has dropped significantly, which unfortunately comes down to money. It's attributed to money. The, the fallout, as I say, players from the Premiership, I would love to see the figures in terms of not young lads, so like 20, 21, 18-year-old, those sort of lads who are still hungry and going for the opportunity. I think that conveyor belt will still happen. But I think the fallout of players who are 23 to 30 dropping out of Premiership clubs down to the Championship, I would love to see figures on how many... Um, how much percent that's gone down by. Yeah, and do you just think simply they're going to go somewhere else? They're going to try and get out to France, MLR, yeah. or wherever they can get, where there's higher funding, higher wages, just to, to play a bit of rugby, which then means, as you kind of said last time, even on the podcast, that Championship will go towards a semi-professional league in maybe even a couple of years' time or further down the line. I, I think it's just about there already. I think of the full-time clubs that I know this season, uh, I know one is definitely trying to go part-time, but their geography makes it very difficult. Um, I know one other club has gone down to a reduced uh, or a very fixed full-time um, schedule, therefore meaning players can work on the, on the side on days they know they're definitely going to be off. Um, we mentioned France. You can play third-tier rugby in France and get paid more than every player in the championship bar healing right now wow which is crazy which is crazy wow. that's, it's, that, that's, that's a crazy notion that's, that's a bad notion that you could play 30 i know boys who've gone to like federal one in france on more money than what they were getting playing at the top end of the championship uh, and, and is, where is that is that is that just because there's more like french rugby as a whole domestically is supported more well there's a bigger fan base there's more businesses involved or is it very much down to the french rugby union ensuring all three leagues are well funded and well maintained i think it's a combination of all obviously the french in the french um federation are very proactive and they do fund it very well i think rugby is a bigger sport compared to football as okay yeah, as opposed to england in terms of i think in big areas of France, particularly the southwest and south coast, uh, rugby is the dominant sport. So therefore, I think the the, um, the amount of fans you get and the amount of interest is obviously a lot more heightened compared to the championship. But also, it's a classic thing for the championship. It's no longer on TV. It's not on Sky Sports anymore. Yeah. There's a refusal to strike a deal with a broadcasting company approach them because of various reasons. As I believe, obviously, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that was down to Thursday night games. Um, a, a broadcast one host Thursday night games, which a lot of the clubs said no to for obvious reasons. It's not financially in terms of tickets through the doors. It's not as in, as lucrative. And when half your boys are part time, if you said, "Well, yeah. uh, Doncaster, oh no, they're full time team, Nottingham part time team," you're away at Pirates on a Thursday night. If boys have got work and jobs. How do you get down to Pirates on a Thursday night unless you're going to ask boys to take two days of annual leave? Which I mean, it's, it's difficult. So um, yeah. Championship rugby is not seen on TV anymore. There's not the interest of the playoffs. The season was nearly done, apart from obviously the top two or top three teams. The rest of the league was done um, very early on, really. Well, I mean, probably halfway through the season was, was nearly done. There's no relegation, so there's no battle there. Teams aren't scrapping to stay alive. Teams aren't fighting to get in that, that top four spot to get into the playoffs. So, yeah, it's... It's a real, real sorry state of affairs, unfortunately. And, and the RFU don't seem to be doing anything about it. The, the only seem to solution they have is align championship clubs with premiership clubs as a, as a parent situation. And 
allowing premiership clubs to use the championship essentially to um, blood in some youngsters or give guys game time who are, who are struggling to get game time in their first team squad. In terms of going forward, um, I mean, like it's pretty clear, like the, the 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 future is pretty bleak for Championship rugby in terms of being professional and, and full time, um, and standards and stuff. But solutions wise, looking at this right now, do you have any? As a, as a as a person who's played a lot of their career in the Championship, you you've been around the block a few times. You know the. Um, not saying you're old by any means, do not worry. But like, oh, um, trust me, I feel it. Yeah, I am. I am definitely. <laughs> but um, what, like, if you were to be hired as a consultant for the RFU, kind of going forward, like, what what sort of ideas would you bring to the table? Um, any solutions to the problems? I mean, there's a whole host of problems where to even begin. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's a million dollar question, I guess. Yeah, Firstly, you have to fund the championship properly. Um, I, I believe currently, I believe, again, I'm not sure on the figures, I think it's somewhere around the 250 grand mark and the clubs are only receiving about 160, maybe 160 to 190 of that 250 due to COVID, which seems to be um, the excuse in a lot of businesses right now. Um, so you've got to find a way to fund that properly. I think you've got to double that figure. I think the 160, 190 you're currently getting now needs to look more like 400. Um, so you're talking 200 grand a club. We're talking additional two million pounds. Bear in mind, the RFU fund, I believe, the Premiership clubs. So thirteen of them at three. I think it's three million a year. So that's thirty-six million. So you're talking a, a small percentage of that. Uh, I think the profits from Twickenham have to be passed down. You look at the cost of going to a game at Twickenham for rugby is disgusting, uh, and that's the only way to put it. It's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's talking about lovely. rugby rugby being a sport for all and we try and get away from the notion that rugby is a tough game played by rich boys at public schools and private schools which um, obviously has been the history of rugby but we try to change that notion charging 129 quid for a ticket for a Six Nations game doesn't doesn't do much to get rid of that notion does it um, you, you look at football football clubs are getting absolutely pelted for uh, overcharging away fans so now it's standardised at 30 quid a ticket yeah, the RFU's cheapest ticket for some of the Six Nation games. I think it was hundred and around the hundred quid mark. I think it was hundred twenty nine yeah. quid. I pay for one. I think there was one of the games was eighty nine quid up in the heavens. Eighty nine quid. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's the same in same in Ireland too. You know, it's um, crazy. It's crazy. That that's crazy in itself. Twickenham's used um, obviously for Six Nations and, and the Auto Internationals. They play a couple of games between like the Varsity game and Premiership Finals and Premiership Big Days out, but. They've got to be looking to maximise the revenue at Twickenham. If they've got, um, say they have a window of four to six weeks where there's no games played on it, then concerts need to be on, especially in the summer. Concerts have to be on. They have to look to max, absolutely maximise that revenue and pass it down to the clubs. Um, I'd love to see the wage bill at the RFU. I'd be very interested to see that wage bill. I'd be very, very interested to see where that money's going or some of that money's going. And um, the... Maybe should we say deemed the patrons of um, of the sport and the old Blazer Boys? I'd like to see how much they're getting paid for their services to the game and how much they're actually doing for that game. Um, obviously, trying not to get drawn, put the most most political, politically correct way possible. But um, okay. I'd, I'd hasten to think that some of those Blazer Boys will be getting more than entire championship clubs funding this game. So I understand. Obviously, there's a great need for there's a great need for the money now. Obviously, women's women's games become more and more popular. Um, I believe there's 
uh, element of professionalism to the women's game, particularly with the national squad. So they're getting paid, uh, rightly so. They're getting they're getting some bums on seats like uh, uh, um, Doncaster. There's eight thousand people there, sold out. I know they do well when they go to Twickenham, and the ladies do really well at Northampton in these places. So rightly so, they're getting paid for it. Um, but we have to look at where the money's where the money's going currently, and I don't understand uh, exactly where it's going. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting as well. That kind of your experience in the championship is that you've seen slowly over time, less and less money get pumped in. And I actually had a look back when Exeter kind of were on the rise up, and Rob Baxter came out for quote and said, "It's ridiculous how many loops that we've had to jump through in order to get promoted." And Zach, you know better than me. You're you're an Exeter man. That, that we must nearly be getting near to, nearly up to a decade of that since then and it's the the loops are there's more loops now it seems yeah it, it does does seem that way unfortunately um but they are if you've got the outcome or or, or the, the powers that be the clubs have got the outcome they they want they've got the premiership shares premiership rugby is own entity so they get their own funding sources through that which obviously profit shares um i think we have to look at rugby as a business as well um out of the Premiership clubs, I believe none made profit in the last two years, which obviously COVID season. I believe the season before COVID, one team made profit. Um, so rugby as a sport is still heavily reliant on benefactors. Um, it, for me personally, I'd love to see rugby back on uh, normal, like normal television, BBC, ITV, Channel 4. I'd love to see as many games as possible on there um, to get the public interest and get the sort of common man interest in rugby. Um, but whether that will happen, um, who knows? I think obviously BT Sport is, is they provide a great platform, and I think the, the shows they do and the rugby shows we've saw uh, Ben Kay and Austin Healy and Hugo Moni are brilliant. But how many people will pay the thirty pounds a month for BT Sport? How many people actually actually see the, the, the end product? Um, I think if it was on terrestrial TV. It could make a I think it could make a significant difference anyway, and get the common man involved in rugby because I still don't think the average working class man is is involved in rugby as significantly as he could be. No, and as well, you're saying of kind of about taking out playoffs. Like I was looking back at old, old videos from playoff games, like proper classic games. Worcester Bristol springs to mind of Chris Pennell and moments yeah. like that. <laughs> moments yeah. like that. They just, I, do you just think that those are they're well, they are just gone now, and you can't have yeah. that. I've played some brilliant, played some brilliant nights in in playoff games and. Like from my experiences at uh, London Welsh winning away at Bristol, no one expected to do that. Bristol had got the All Star team. They bought like Ryan Jones in his British line at the time, halfway through the season. Like it was like, well, you boys are done here, and we um, sort of underdog story and and came back from that. Doncaster, we nearly beat Bristol. Obviously, Doncaster like on a shoestring budget. We won our final playoff game away at Bristol. The final final didn't win overall, but winning away at Bristol in the playoff game was fantastic. Ashton Gate was uh, packed to the rafters like those. As you mentioned, the Bristol Worcester game, like went down to the final kick of the game. Like it's it's brilliant. It's not only brilliant to play, and it's brilliant for the spectator. It's brilliant for the neutral to watch that and go like, "Wow, like is this how this this is where it can get to?" But they took out that element because there's an element of risk. You had big clubs not going back up, not being promoted, and um, it's not supposed to be that way. Yeah, because I've seen seen back in uh, back in 2020, Ealing. Ealing would have played Newcastle playoff game, and then obviously COVID and stuff. They just promoted Newcastle. Like even, in, do you think that would have been a bit tighter at that time? I wasn't sure. I know Newcastle have kicked on since, which seems to be the common theme. Once you're given the money and you're given time to grow in the in the Premiership. 
I think Newcastle would have won comfortably, but it's, it's a one-off game. Like, we've just seen football. Like, Man City were tuning up in the Champions League final, semi-final, and 88 minutes to go and they lose. That's, that's sport. That's, like, the, the beauty of sport, that a, a Newcastle playing Ealing, Newcastle should be Ealing 99 times out of 100. But in a one-off game, a one-off playoff game, who knows what can happen? Like, Bristol should beat London Welsh. One-off playoff game, who knows what can happen? Like, Bristol should have came back up the four or five years in the championship, but couldn't win one-off playoff games. And I think that's what makes it interesting. It, it gives you something to play for. It, it elongates the season in terms of clubs, as I mentioned before, fighting, whether it's promotion to get in those playoff spots, to get a home semi-final. They're fighting the whole way through the season. So I think it, it's so much healthier for the game. But obviously the powers that be don't want that. They don't want that competition. They don't want that level playing field. It's, it's not really a level playing field because the relegated club is still getting at the time, I don't know, five, six, seven times more funding than the rest of the clubs. But it, it, it evens it out somewhat. So, unfortunately, the um, the leaks and the powers that be don't, don't want that, which is a, a massive shame, I think. Yeah, and you said as well, when you won the, when you're the player for London Wells, did you feel as that season went on when you were in the Premiership, it was very much the feeling of, we're not really wanted here, we're not meant to be here, this, this wasn't in the plan and... Really well, it's, it's difficult because London Welsh had been up previously. So London Welsh obviously went up and did a lot better. Uh, only went down sort of close. Um, it was quite narrow going down. But I think obviously there was that ongoing issue with London Welsh suing the RFU. And there's that ongoing thing. I think, I think like in anything, when you take on the powers that be, you're not going to win for one. I know London Welsh did win in the short term. They got an, an, an amount of money. But then when it came to London Welsh falling into financial irregularities, they were sent to, I don't know what, tier, tier 10, tier 11. Since then, there's been other clubs falling into financial irregularities, not being able to pay boys, not being able to pay medical bills, falling out of leagues, refusing to enter leagues in the championship. And there's been no such, um, such punishment. So obviously being a bit of a, um, not a conspiracy theorist, but being a bit of a pragmatist, makes me think that had Lena Welsh not seen that court case and could it have potentially been a different outcome? I don't know. Yeah. And as you were saying, kind of from your own experiences, you've seen the fairy tale stories, the Exeters go up, the Bristols up in the playoffs. You've you've seen it happen and you wouldn't be kind of banging the drum if you didn't think more professional clubs can come out of England, the size of England. So no, I'm the same. I'm I'm very much and someone who's kind of breaking into sports journalism, seeing kind of stories and sport is what I'm after always. And the coolest stories and the people from the bottom to the top, like that's all it is. And for that to be taken away, obviously, is disappointing for Ealing. But they did say next year they're going to do a review of the of kind of the stadium capacity and all. Do you think anything will change in twelve months' time? Absolutely none, unless unless they've got I don't know. 20, 50, however many million to throw out a ground to be built in a season. Um, I don't see a single way it changes, unfortunately. And I think the safety, as I say, the safety laws, I understand why they're there, but you're not talking, Ealing getting 10,000 people to a game would be crazy. It, it's never going to happen. Like, London Broncos played at Ealing in the Super League and the big uh, Yorkshire clubs, I, I watched them when they played Leeds Rhinos. Leeds Rhinos brought 2,000 fans down. There's loads of, there's like a big day out in London, bit, a bit of a piss up, what have you. And there was still ample room for everyone to stand, everyone to watch. There was no issues whatsoever, and it was all fine. So if London, uh, if Leeds Rhinos, who's at the time, the average attendance would be higher than most of the clubs in the Premiership, if not all, 
couldn't come to an away game at London Broncos, whose home attendance was very similar to Ealing, actually slightly more, I think, and it will be fine and safe, then you tell me the problem. I don't know. I don't know. But someone who's uh, above my pay grade in the RFU will be able to uh, explain that one. No, hopefully we can. <laughs> yeah, well, the, en- the, entry cri- the entry criteria into the Football League's 5,000. So to get to come up into the conference, you've got to be able to have 5,000 people into a ground. Wouldn't that be a lot more, I don't know, fitting for a club of Ealing, Ealing circumstances and their current fan base? Obviously, Ealing are relatively a new club at this level in terms of they haven't been in the league that long. They had quite a smart rise obviously due to the financial backing through the leagues and if Ealing got if there was 5,000 people at an Ealing game I'd be absolutely amazed to be perfectly honest so ever that is so wouldn't that be more suitable suggestion to amend the laws amend the rules so that it was fitting you got to do like the 10,000 fan mark I'm guessing there's probably three maybe four if not maybe more probably four clubs frequently don't hit that capacity market in their home games so it's a figure that's a bit a bit of a finger in the air figure because you're talking 40% of the league don't get anywhere near that for home attendances, average home attendances. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting... Obviously, when you're, if you're in the Premiership, you've got an opportunity to grow your fan base and grow with, like grow your fan base as the club grows, you grow and the fan base grows and you get more numbers in because they keep relating back to So They didn't have packed down no. your nights at Sandy Park when they were playing in the no. championship days. Yeah, exactly. When they were playing pretend bees at home, there wasn't uh, there wasn't fifteen thousand rammed in, banging the drums, ready for uh, ready for Toulouse to come knocking or something like that. So, but the RFU talk about growing the game. We talk we always talk about growing the sport. What we need to grow the sport. We, we did it with the women's game, and that that's grown women's sport. It's been fantastic. We talk about growing the sports at grassroots levels. But then there's a, a, a block as soon as you say, well, Ealing coming to the Premiership, we're growing the sport. That's another club who hasn't had the benefit of a Premier League season, a Premiership season, sorry. They haven't faced that competition. They haven't had European games there. They haven't had all these things. So we're talking about growing the sport. Either either, either as, as a sport, we're keen on growing the sport indefinitely, or we have to make it clear that actually there's parameters to this and we don't want to grow the sport here. And if if there are a few or whoever the powers that be make it clear that they don't want to grow the sport in that way, then that's fine. I just I prefer it to be an open, outright mission statement to say, we don't want promotion relegation. We don't want equal competition. We don't want meritocracy. We don't want equal funding. And then everyone can get on with it. And then we're all we're all on the same page. But, yes, yeah, it's just that uh, clear communication from all parties is more the, the annoying thing than actually decisions being made. Yeah, just the open and honest, open and honestness. No, yeah. No, it's quite it's quite a tough podcast to wrap up because we could go on forever, Ollie. But, oh yeah, I could rant about it for ages. Yeah, definitely. I think no, I think we've, we've hit kind of means I got a few bullet points. We've definitely hit all our points and a big thanks for coming on today and anyone that's made this far in the podcast I'm sure is all of you hopefully give us a follow on Spotify at the Tough Rugby Podcast follow us on Twitter Rugby Tell and Instagram the Tough Rugby Podcast and we'll catch you next week big thanks again Ollie yeah thank you for having me guys cheers for that